Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And every week we talk about a new aspect of psychology or psychiatry. Today we have Dr. Jim Polo, who is a board certified psychiatrist and has worked in so many different aspects of psychiatry. It occurred to me to ask him the question, what's it like to be a psychiatrist? Dr. Polo, thanks for being game for answering the question. That's super cool. Well, thank you, Sheila. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate this topic, I think. <laughs> you, you don't know for sure. You can tell me in 25 minutes, okay? <laughs> I, I want to ask you what first, um, I mean, because I know you're going through medical school, and for most uh, medical students, it's very difficult to try to determine which specialty, which type of medicine you want to practice. So give us just a little uh, bit of background about what finally drew you to the practice of psychiatry. In medical school, when I first started medical school, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even know there were residencies and I didn't know you specialized. It took me about a year to figure that out. And as I started thinking about it early in my uh, medical school days, I actually wanted to be a pediatrician. I love kids and I thought that being a pediatrician would be a lot of fun at the same time that, you know, I could, you know, help kids. And unfortunately, during my fourth year of medical school, I did a... uh, eight-week rotation in pediatric oncology. And in the 80s, most kids in pediatric oncology did not do well. And this is a little bit stressful for me. And I finally decided, you know what? It's a little bit too disappointing. I just, I just can't do that. Mm-hmm. So then I thought of being a neonatologist. That turned out to be even worse. Um, those kids were really challenging in terms of just not doing well. And I, I really had to balance, you know, how do I help kids? But at the same time, I can't deal with just really bad case after bad case after bad case. So um, I went into psychiatry thinking, well, you know, I like helping people and I love talking to people. And I, I went into psychiatry. Uh, in psychiatry, you train, train as an adult psychiatrist first. And I actually left my psychiatry residency after the first year because I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, so I practiced in a general practice clinic setting for two years. And I did a lot of ER work and I did a lot of primary care work. And what I noticed is that invariably I would see patients, I was always running late and it's because I would start talking to them. And before you know it, we were talking about their lives and what was going on. And invariably people would come to see me for a bum knee or a pain somewhere, but really they were looking for something else. And so I went back uh, to my psychiatry training program, uh, finished that up. And as soon as I finished, I went straight into child and adolescent psychiatry. What I had noticed when I was treating adults is the grand majority of adults had problems that had begun years before they came to see me. Mm. So I figured if I was a child psychiatrist, I could match up helping people earlier at the same time that I love being with kids. Um, and even though I have to admit there have been many sad, disappointing cases, um, there have also been many, many, many uplifting good cases. So, What was the... Um maybe the expectation that you had around being a psychiatrist that was the one that was completely a myth, something that got completely exploded when you were actually practicing, was because we all carry these ideas about what what our profession is, and sometimes it takes us many years to discover what it isn't. But uh, I'm so curious about that. Is there um, anything that you dreamed you could be capable of doing or that might be possible as a, as a psychiatrist that really did not come true? That's a great question. You know, in medicine in general, as a physician, you have uh, a great idea 
of what's going on with people. You do an evaluation, you figure out what's going on, you, you explain that to them. Invariably, they want to get better. And so usually they follow directions, et cetera, so on and so forth, uh, whether it's a medication or a treatment or whatever. I think the thing that I learned early in my career when it, when it comes to psychiatric practice is that very often I would evaluate patients and I could figure out, well, I can see why they're having difficulties, whether it's depression, anxiety, whatever. And simply explaining that to them didn't change their behavior. Mm. And it was one of those things where it's like, and wait a second, do, do these people want to get better or not? Because it's mm. pretty obvious to me what's going on, you know? Right. And one of the things that I learned is you can't tell people what to do. You have to help them understand what's going on, and they have to have a motivation to, to change. And in the practice of psychiatry, very often folks are struggling with emotional issues that very often are quite complex. Um, it relates to their relationships, how they were raised, what they might believe in. And generally, you have to help them kind of be able to understand it in a way that they can decide, well, how do I want my life to be? What do I want to do with it? And by default, is there something I need to change to get where I want to go? Mm. And what I learned the hard way is that sometimes folks don't really want to change. Right. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, that's, that's such a terrific answer. Is there um, uh, an answer to this question that I, I also asked uh, Dr. Jenna Lejeune, who's a psychologist, um, three things if you could tell people to have um, better psychological understanding she named exercise and someone you can talk to who, who whom you completely trust and also to eat nutritious food and she added sleep do you have sort of that thing like if you could just grant all of your patients three things for well-being that you think would actually put people on a much better path toward better health if i had three things that i could tell just anybody the the first thing I think I would uh, tell them, and, I, and I, I'm thinking from the perspective of helping people early in life, okay? Yeah. I think the first thing I would, I would try to help folks understand is that life is hard. It's not an issue of whether it's fair or not fair. It's hard. We all have difficult situations. We can't always predict what they're going to be. Mm. And we have to be willing to realize that sometimes things are hard and, and it's normal to struggle. Because I think the, the biggest thing that, that I, you know, notice in folks that are struggling is that sometimes what's stressing them out is the fact that they're struggling and that struggle is really just a normal reaction to whatever's going on. So the first thing is life is hard. You will struggle and struggle is normal. I think the second thing that I would recommend is you can't, you, you can't go it alone. You know, there's a saying, I can't remember quite how the saying it, it goes. If you, if you want to get somewhere fast, go alone. If you want to get there and get there well, go with other people. Oh my God, I love that. I just and, want to pause and let that sink in. That is so brilliant. And the reason That's why I say so that brilliant. is because none of us are really built to succeed all by ourselves. I mean, we, we try to do that. We think we can do that. You know, people that are very confident in themselves rarely ask for help from others. And yet we all need help from others. Mm. And so I think the second thing I would would help people understand is the be willing to look for help, be willing to ask for help, be willing to not know everything, be willing to get support from other people because life is hard. Wow. I think the third thing I would say, um, to be honest, is a little bit different. Um, I think the third thing I would tell people is, hey, don't look to drugs and alcohol to feel better. It, it won't work. 
and I guess the reason why I say that is throughout my career, I've seen so many people that have fallen into the trap of, of using drugs and alcohol. It's very interesting. Uh, people that use drugs fall into one of two categories. Um, they're either trying to feel something that they don't f- feel on their own, or they're trying to take away a feeling that is miserable. And I guess the reason why that's been helpful to me is because I don't think of drug or alcohol use as a defect. I don't think of it as being something that makes somebody a bad person. The way I see it is, hey, look, these folks are struggling with something that is emotionally painful. And whatever that feeling is, they want to change it. Mm -hmm. Drugs will change the way that you feel, but they're short-lived. They generally cause uh, other damage along the way. And then, of course, with many drugs, if you get addicted, that, that's a whole problem all by itself. And so, you know, life is hard. You need help. And when you're having feelings that don't work out, whether you're missing a feeling or you have a feeling you don't like, don't turn to drugs. Turn to people. I love those answers so much. But there is something that captures me back to this question of what, what's it like to be a psychiatrist? How... And why can you feel comfortable prescribing someone perhaps a medication that might actually help in many ways do the same thing that an addict says, well, when I take this drug, this is how it makes me feel. And if, yeah. if what your job is, is to know what might be at the nexus of what's wrong and then to prescribe something that can help, how is that any different? That's a very Good question. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull it apart a little bit. First of all, when I talk with patients, I never refer to medications as drugs. I'm very, very careful. I always refer to medications as medications. Okay. And I refer, when I use the word drugs, I am actually talking about, you know, illicit substances or substances that are non-prescribed. I don't right. call prescription medications drugs. That's the first thing I've just kind of done. I remind folks, and, um, and this is hard, that we live in a culture where we want our needs met quickly. And we've kind of developed this attitude, I think, that there's a medication for everything. And the reality is there isn't. So I actually don't jump to use medications in the first place. And when I do finally decide that somebody might benefit from a medication, I'll remind them, hey, look, medications treat symptoms, physical symptoms. I'm going to help your body feel better. I'm going to help you have less of those symptoms that are bothersome to you. But these medications don't change the way you think. It won't change you to like something that you don't like. It won't change you to not like something that that you should. It, It won't make you change your behavior. It won't make you realize that something that you're doing doesn't really help you. It won't make your relationships better. That's what therapy is about. Therapy is to help you understand yourself better and figure out how do you want to live your life so that emotionally you're, you're happier. Mm-hmm. And medications can sometimes help take away those symptoms that are bothersome so that you can focus on the therapy. And to be honest, when I explain that to my patients, the overwhelming number of them, they really do understand it. And they mm-hmm. recognize, okay, I've listened to what you've told me I may or may not feel. And I'm willing to consider, you know, that we still need to go through some therapy to figure out why it is that I don't have relationships that work out or why it is that I am constantly depressed or why it is that, you know, that abuse from childhood just plagues me every single day. And obviously there are some people that they just want a quick fix. Uh, They want a medication that will take whatever it is that they're struggling with. And, you know, I 
sometimes we'll let folks know, you know, I might not be the right person for you then because um, I'm just not sure that continuing to prescribe something with the outcome that you're looking for is really going to help you in the long run. And my goal is to really help you in the long run. So I want to talk about that, um, helping people in the long run. What is the day-to-day flow of a psychiatrist's life? Uh, Wow. Well, the first thing I'll tell you is that it, it kind of depends the setting that you're working in. So I'll, the setting that I really enjoyed is I had an outpatient clinic where I saw children. Typically, when I had a new patient, the patient would come in a little bit early with their parent. The parent would fill out all the paperwork and so forth while they were waiting. And, you know, then I would I would meet the parent and the child together and I would go through the paperwork and what's the basic problem and what have you noticed and what's going on. And I would ask a lot of questions of the parent with the child listening because my approach was, I needed to let the child know, hey, I'm going to be asking your parents a lot of questions. You get to know exactly what's going on. Uh, Invariably, we'd reach a point where I no longer needed any more information for the parents. It was time for them to leave. And so I would ask them to return to the waiting room and I'm going to spend some time with their child and we'll meet again after I'm done. Very often they knew this was coming because it was in the paperwork that I would send them ahead of time. (laughs) But they didn't like it anymore. They didn't (laughs) like it. Just because they they, knew. You know, what is my kid going to say? You know, you'll tell me everything, whatever. And if my kid says I'm a bad parent, I'm not really. One of the first questions I would say, so your mom just left, your dad just left, or your parents just left. What do you think? Would they say that's important? Would they say that's not important? Oh my gosh, the answers these kids would say. I mean, all over the map. Everything from, they have no clue what's going on, to, well, my mom's perfect. She always is. Mm. Or here again. (laughs) So invariably, that would lead then to a more casual conversation with the child. From their perspective, they might have interpreted, this guy's just talking with me. But I actually was very, very careful to be approaching them to get information. You know, what was going on that led them to be here? Why did their parents think they were having trouble? Did they think they were having a problem? You know, what was going on? And invariably, I'd evaluate relationships. You know, I'd think about where they were with development. You know, are they able to articulate? And then through that process, um, eventually, I would come to a conclusion of, you know, does the child have a diagnosis that I can hone in on? And almost always there was. And I would explain that to the child before I explained it to the parents to make sure they understood. And I would go through all the different things, all the different precautions with the child in terms of, okay, we're going to bring your mom back in. We're going to bring your parents back in. Here's what I'm planning to tell them. I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to tell them this. I'm going to tell them this. This is what I think is going on. Mm. This is what I think might be a struggle for you. And here's what I think might help. Oh, by the way, You told me about this and thus. Don't worry. I'm not telling that to your parents. They don't need to know that. Or you shared with me honestly that you had, you know, had that one episode with your friends where you got drunk. Don't worry. That's not really what we're going to talk about with your parents. And then invariably, kids would begin to feel comfortable and trustworthy that I wasn't just another parent. But I also wasn't just a snitch that was going to tell the parents everything that was going on. Right. Now, the challenge is sometimes, and and this happened uh, not infrequently, you know, sometimes kids would, you know, in the course of treatment, um, I would share with them, there are certain things, you know, that unfortunately, if they come up, you know, I won't be able to hide these things, you know. Uh, If you think you're going to hurt yourself, as an example, and you tell me that you're thinking of that, I mean, I have to make sure that you're safe. That's something we'd have to figure out how we're going to bring your parents into the discussion. And when it came to those types of issues, very often I would sit down with a child and say, okay, you know, you've been sharing with me how you've been cutting. And I know that, uh, I know that you don't think it's a significant thing, but it really is. We need to let your parents know. 
Mm. So how would you like to do that? In other words, the, the subtle implication is we're telling your parents that's happening. You don't get that choice. Right. You do get a choice of the how. how. Yeah. Okay. And uh, sometimes they would, they would say things like, well, um, can, can we wait? Well, no, I think really now is the time. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Pohl, can you just tell them? Because I don't really know what to say. Well, I could. Here's what I could say. Mm, would you like to hear of a different way that we could approach this? Or sometimes they would say, um, you know, I want to tell them. I said, okay. How are you going to tell them? So we'd work out a plan. Oh, wow. I'd help cool. them work out a plan. And the goal was twofold. They were in control of sharing with their parents whatever it is that was going on. And they were going to own the idea of how to do that. I was simply going to give them some good ideas that would make it helpful. And, uh, you know, parents are challenging. In fact, one of the things you learn as a child psychiatrist is very often you're, you're helping the parents at the same time that you're helping the child. Very often parents are creating, or I should say helping whatever the problem is. And so depending on the case, you know, I might be helping a child in a way that would be unique for that kid versus another child, but always helping the child to feel like, number one, I was trustworthy. I was listening. My goal was to still help them. My goal was not to make them feel controlled by anybody, let alone their parents. That was my most enjoyable kind of work life. But I will tell you, at the end of the day, I was starved for adult conversation. <laughs> How, what happens if the source of the illness, the source of the anxiety or the fear or the panic is the parent it's himself or herself? Oh boy, that's a deep, deep probing question because it happens more often than you might realize. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, there's no question that sometimes uh, parents are misguided. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. And in fact, sometimes parents are, are just downright cruel actually, believe it or not. Now, luckily, I didn't have too many cases where that was intentional. You know, uh, I have had many cases of children that reported abuse or that reported, you know, physical trauma at the hands of their parents. And unfortunately, um, sometimes that's behavior that you have to report. Um, and there are some parents that, frankly, um, should not be parents. Um, but most of the parents that I've seen in the course of treating children have been parents that themselves have issues, themselves have difficult backgrounds, themselves have a fractured sense of self. Sometimes they're not able to recognize that their own issues are complicating how they're relating to their kids, but also how they're raising their kids. Wow. And so once again, the reason why that's important to me is that I have made the mistake of sometimes thinking, oh, this is all the parents' fault. I'm just going to tell them, you know, they need to change. Well, that doesn't work. That's the first thing. And second of all, you know, parents are very sensitive. They're not going to necessarily accept blame for something that they don't think is their fault. And that doesn't help anyway. It's not about blaming uh, emotional feelings on something or someone. It's right. about trying to understand them so that you can change and figure out what needs to be changed. Um, no question, many of the people that I've seen in treatment, uh, particularly adolescents, had challenging relationships with their parents. Um, some very thin ice in terms of sharing anything. Um, and that made it challenging. But nonetheless, um, I, I think as long as you maintain a relationship with the individual that you're focused on trying to help, uh, knowing full well, I'll go back to what you first asked me. Life is tough. It's not about fair. It's 
it's just the way it is. You know, sure. I remember telling kids, yep, these are your parents. You don't get to choose new ones. So um, it's not a matter of, you know, it's unfair. It's just what it is. How do you want to handle that? Yeah. Hey, my mom always calls me names. I hate it. I've told her, Dr. Paul, you've told her not to call me names. She still does it. Okay. How do we handle that? So, you know, I have found that working with kids is just for myself personally enriching. Um, there have been many sad cases and obviously some kids that have had serious disturbance that has gone on to be um, serious enough that I've not been able to necessarily make a, an impact that I would want to make, mm. I guess. You talked about people's willingness to change. And I would imagine that in child psychiatry, you see more willingness because kids have that adaptability and creativity and they're not stuck in their ways so much. When you get into the adult setting, how do you deal with people who say, I can't cope with this anymore, but they also have that sort of rigid uh, approach to life where, where you feel like maybe they're not capable of changing either? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, that's a very interesting question because um, I've made that mistake. I've tried to tell people that their problem was they're unwilling to change and that didn't work. <laughs> no, no, I can imagine. Yeah. That's uh, not but, a very skilled but, observation but, to share. But it goes to the, you remember, I've been doing this for 35 years, so I've yeah. had a chance to make every single mistake repeatedly. Um, um, but it goes to something that I think that, that, that you're touching on that's really, really important. Um, you know, all of us have a character structure. It's our personality. It's how we approach life. It's how we see things. You know, what are the things that tend to bother us? What are the things that tend to kind of not bother us? How do we cope when, with, when there's a challenge? So in part of my work with people, I'm constantly thinking about how to line up what's happening in their life and the things that they're dealing with and how they're dealing with them. And what does that mean about their personality and character structure? Because if I can learn about what makes them tick, now it doesn't matter what the event is. That's just another event. Because most of us approach stress in the way that we have found is helpful to us. The reason why I put it that way is that sometimes people develop coping skills, coping approaches that are not effective. They don't help. Even if we think they help, they're, they're dangerous to us. So I give you a very simple example. Most folks know that anorexia is an eating disorder. It's an eating disorder where people will restrict their food intake. And it's very complex. It's a coping mechanism at the end of the day for those individuals. So when people that have anorexia are under significant stress, doesn't matter what the stress is, they will start having more symptoms that they use to cope with stress. And for them, it's restriction of eating food. Mm. So if I have a young anorexic then going through a, a challenging period with parents or trying to figure out how they're going to you know, have their first apartment or how they're going to survive with their first job or they're having feelings that, that are emotional for them, their way of coping can sometimes be those very symptoms. That's an example of the way all of us are. We all develop these different ways of coping, right? And for so many people, for a long time, it might actually work right up until it doesn't. Yeah. So how do you honor that, hey, bravo, you actually figured out a way to be in a dysfunctional family and still get straight A's and do whatever you do. Uh, now this eating thing is something we're going to have to work yeah. on, yeah. right? Because yeah. It does for many people, their, their behaviors are a way to cope and to be able to survive. 
Your question is a great one because it's, it's really complex. Sometimes our ways of coping with struggles around us do indeed help. And that kind of reinforces that approach. Sometimes they help at the same time that they, they maybe cause a problem to us, you know? And so at some level, the way I approach individuals is I'm trying to help them understand themselves. This is how you tend to react. This is the outcome of that. You, you react in a certain way that leads to your relationships always falling apart. And, and here's how that way of reacting is actually helping you, but, but here's a, actually how it's hurting you, okay? Now, I don't say this to people because if you just tell them, they'll, they, they don't get it. They have to really almost discover this on their own. So, you know, in the practice of psychiatry, a lot of this is reflecting what you're observing, offering a few insights, walking folks into beginning to understand themselves because as they understand themselves, that really then helps them then think about, hmm, do I need to change something? So when it comes to relationships as an example, because this is a very common, common uh, issue in, in many folks that are in, in therapy, uh, difficulty with relationships, you know, what are they doing that contributes to make those relationships difficult? And why do they do those things? How does that help them? Where does that come from? Mm. And if they want to have a different kind of relationship, what's the part they need to change? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it just the whole idea of it just seems so hopeful to me. I know that you spend a lot of time with the very seriously mentally ill. Is Mm -hmm. any of what you've described in terms of your flow, the things that you're looking for, the ways that you're attempting to help, does it change dramatically when you're dealing with people who have had 20 years of schizophrenia, have been on multiple drugs, or are much more, as we call, further gone down the road than um, a person who's been newly diagnosed? And that's one of the sad things about uh, some mental health diagnoses. Um, there are some diagnoses where the diagnosis in and of itself is defined by symptoms that make therapy really not practical. Mm. And, and, and I notice how I didn't say not in, I didn't say impossible. I simply said impractical. So I'll give you an example. You know, I had a patient many, many years ago. Um, he was in his young 20s. And uh, early on when I f- saw him, I was almost positive. Uh, he was very early in the course of, of a psychotic break. Uh, I, I diagnosed him initially with a diagnosis called schizophreniform disorder. And schizophreniform disorder is basically that prelude to schizophrenia. It's very early in the process. You're, you're under six months. You, you've had a psychotic break and they have all the right things that make me think, uh-oh, this is not going away. This is not a drug reaction. This is not drug use. This mm-hmm. is not a, a, uh, a mood disorder with a psychotic feature. It's not a severe depression. This is a primary psychotic disorder of the schizophreniform schizophrenia type. And sure enough, after seeing this, this young man for about a year and a half, uh, that's the conclusion and that's the diagnosis I made. He had actually been in college at the time, uh, was the son of a physician, no less. And he descended into a pretty significant psychotic state where I really, sometimes I thought I could communicate to him. And there, there are other times where I just, I, I knew that whatever I was saying was not really getting captured by him. His parents wanted me to continue to see him, which I did. And, and luckily, he was compliant with medication 
most of the time. And there were times where he seemed to be a little bit more clear thinking. And then there were other times where it was just clear. He was just not, you know, the reality is I learned, I can't help everybody through therapy. There, there are, you have to be able to understand the therapeutic process. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to be reflective. And unfortunately there are some psychiatric diagnoses where people are impaired enough that their thinking is not geared to be able to do therapy. I have often thought about the difficulty right now with many people finding a good psychiatrist, having access to care, having insurance companies cover, uh, psychiatric time is spent adjusting medicines. And I wonder as a psychiatrist, how you view some of those criticisms and what your thoughts are about the potential need for change. Uh, the first thing I would say is that we do have a challenge right now. I'm not sure if this is what you're alluding to. We do have a challenge in our country with not enough folks that are trained to help people that are struggling with emotional disorders. But I would tell you up front, we don't need necessarily a whole legion of psychiatrists because there are a lot of people that need help, but they don't really need a psychiatrist. And the reason why I put it that way is because very often some of the struggles that we go through are the struggles that really are a normal part of life. And what you need is you need somebody that can help you and support you with a little bit of guidance uh, to get you back on track. You know, I'm forgetting who this was. There's, a, uh, there's an African psychiatrist, oh, I'm blanking on the name. I wish I had it in the back of my head, who, who developed this model. Everyone needs a grandmother. Grandmothers are the people that kids would go to and they knew you could take whatever problems your grandmother was because she loved you. She was going to help you. And it didn't matter really, you know, whether she had true knowledge from a scientific emotional perspective. It was more about the relationship and the love and the caring and the listening and, and so forth. And, and sure enough, this model has proven out to be quite successful. And, wow. and think about that. Years and years ago, before we had the lexicon of all the diagnoses that we currently have and our understanding of the complexity of, you know, psychiatry and so forth. I mean, if you just go back in time, I mean, when people ran into challenges, very often who they turned to was, you know, it's my aunt. She's the one right. that knows how to help everybody. Or it's my yeah. grandmother. Or, uh, and people were closer. Families were more connected. We were not as transient in terms of moving around. And it goes back to that idea of you can't make it through life alone. And, you know, obviously, some people are not the people you reach out to for advice. Okay. <laughs> no question. Okay. Nobody goes to Uncle Tom because Tom will never quite <laughs> give you good advice. Okay? That's right. But the reason why I say that is because life is hard. Life is hard. It's unpredictable. None of us make it through alone. But it's not like we all need to be in therapy with a psychiatrist either. Mm. That's a fascinating viewpoint, um, Dr. Polo, just because, you know, I know, for instance, I, the most recent statistic I saw is that for every like 100 kids who need care, there's only five child psychiatrists. And I just want to understand whether or not you tell young people to go into this field. And if you do give them that pep talk, what is it that you tell them? Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, so I used to be, uh, I, I've worked with residencies and I used to be uh, on the admissions committee at my medical school, my alma mater. Uh, and I've certainly had plenty of time to interface with younger folks that were thinking about what they wanted to do. And, and I've often gotten the question, well, Dr. Polo, why did you become a psychiatrist? You know, mm -hmm. why did you choose it? And rather than trying to tell them it's what they should do every 
physician feels they chose the exact right specialty and therefore everybody else should be just like them. What, what I've usually told folks is I said, well, you know, here's why I chose it for me and this is what I've gotten out of it. And here's what I tell them. One of the things that I've seen over my career is it's hard to feel like you have enough time with patients. You know, we're always talking about that 15-minute appointment, that 10-minute appointment, you know, how, ma how many different questions can you ask in 10 minutes and prescribe a medication so somebody will leave so you can see the next patient and, and mm -hmm. you never get enough time. One of the things about psychiatry is that actually it's foundational to have time. In all the years that, that I've been watching medicine change, the one thing that has not changed is the traditional evaluation of an hour has never changed. When I was a young intern in the 1980s, today, if I'm doing an evaluation, I still have a full hour and it's enough. It's enough time. Wow, okay? really? So, so psychiatry allows me to really connect and spend time with people. And I truly believe every patient is different. I never get bored. And I really mean that. And I'll tell you why I say that. I, I remember at one point I wanted to go into ortho. And so I shouted an orthopedist. And I remember one thing he said to me one day. Jim, I love doing knees. And this was back when, when he did a lot of meniscal repairs that were open. This was before scopes were invented. I mean, he, he, he was a meniscal tear guy and, and he also did ligaments. And he says, I've done so many of these, I can do them in my sleep. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, that's not what I want to be. That is not what I, I don't want to do something so much over and over that it's so routine that I don't even have to think about it. And he didn't mean it that way. And uh -huh. frankly, I'm glad there are good orthopedic surgeons out there. Yeah. But the beauty of psychiatry is that I can have 10 people that come to tell me why they're struggling with depression. Every single story is completely different. Mm. Each personality is completely completely different. Their lives are all unique. It really makes me feel like I'm helping somebody in their world, not just trying to take some medical, you know, treatment or some medical procedure and presto fix them and move on. I want to end it there because I just thought that was so beautiful. I'll be pulling that last 15 seconds of that out for all of our promotions. Dr. Jim Fuller, thank you so much. And if you listen and you love the podcast, please give us a thumbs up. You can always reach us at Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. And again, Dr. Fuller, thank you very, very much for spending thank your time Sheila. with us. Thank you.